Good to see you all this morning. Uh, feel free to keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be working our way through the passage here. As you do so, I'd like to uh, begin by asking you all to imagine a very different life for yourself. Uh, let's imagine that instead of sitting in a relatively comfortable church building or enjoying broadband internet at home or in your apartment, you're chained up right now in some dark and miserable prison in first century Jerusalem. And you're definitely not in the nice part of the prison. Uh, turns out you're in the worst part of the prison. You're shackled up right now on death row. You're incredibly thirsty, hungry. You haven't eaten or drank anything in days. It's hard to sleep on account of the pain because you recently sustained a brutal beating at the hands of the guards. And adding insult to injury, you're filthy. You haven't had a proper bath in months. And your stench appears to be attracting even more rats to your cell. Now, how in the world did you, a devout, serious Jewish person, end up here on death row of all places? Well, you're here because somewhere along the way, you lost your way. You see, as you uh, spent your whole life uh, growing up under the oppressive occupation of the Roman Empire, with every passing year, your hatred of those filthy, unclean Gentiles grew. You became more and more angry, but at the same time, you became more and more afraid, and also more and more self-righteous. You often fantasized about how much uh, your, 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 your life might be if you could just kick those foreigners out of your land, the holy land. And as you came of age, there came a moment where you decided you simply had enough. You're going to do something about this. You're going to make them pay for the sins that they've committed against you and your people. So it doesn't take long before you meet some other like-minded people. In fact, uh, it's almost as if they were looking for someone just like you. They saw the world a lot like you did, primarily through this lens, this lens of it's us versus them. And the thing about this worldview, uh, us versus them, is that it really only presents you with two options forward. You either have to fight or flight. Oh, and you're not, you're not going anywhere, right? Not like those other cowards. You're going to fight. You and your companions decide uh, you're going to militarize. You're going to form an insurrectionist fashion. And your number one mission in this life is dealing with them. All right, you're going to take those oppressive Gentile heathen and you're going to cleanse the land of them by any means necessary. And that is actually why you are rotting away today on death row, because one fateful day uh, during a miserably unsuccessful rebellion attempt, you murdered in cold blood some Roman citizens. 
And now here you are, bound like an animal, guilty of high treason against the Roman Empire, the most serious crime. Meaning your execution is coming any day now. It's an execution that you know will be excruciatingly painful and horrifically shameful because that's how the Roman Empire reminds people who's in charge. And it's hard at this point to not feel completely hopeless, profoundly regretful. What was it all for? It almost feels like you're under some sort of curse. Forsaken by God and man. Well, you can come back now. Thankfully, you can stop imagining that, that life for yourself. And the reason I had you all endure that was so that uh, we could actually step into the very uncomfortable shoes of a man that we're actually going to meet in our passage today. You might have guessed who that man is already. Talking about that fella named Barabbas, who we're told was a, was a rebel, insurrectionist, imprisoned for murder. Uh, let's just read about him again. Look, look at uh, verse 7. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Now here's the thing that's so interesting about his story, because completely unbeknownst to him, rotting away in prison, his circumstances would take this completely unexpected turn when his life suddenly crosses paths with the life of Jesus of Nazareth. But before we look forward to that uh, fateful encounter, let's take a quick step back and, and remind ourselves of how we got here. Because remember how last week Jesus was on trial before the rulers of Israel where Jesus was dragged in the middle of the night into a super sketchy uh, trial before the Sanhedrin, that is the ruling uh, council of Israel, who had actually been waiting for this very moment. Their goal all along has been to destroy Jesus. And that trial before the Sanhedrin concludes with uh, Jesus being found guilty of the mortal sin of blasphemy. And they sentence him to death for it. You know, there was no actual evidence or reliable testimony offered up against Jesus, but there he is, guilty. And while Jesus stood trial before the Sanhedrin, Peter, one of uh, his most trusted disciples, was also facing a trial of his own. What Kerry referred to last week is the, the moment of truth. Uh, be sure to go online and listen to that message if you haven't already. And here's what's revealed in Peter's moment of truth. Peter arrogantly thought he was going to be the faithful disciple. But he's brought to the end of himself as he denies Jesus three times and therefore stripped bare of all his pretense, all his bravado, and he even ends up invoking a curse upon himself as he's trying to save himself. And, and both, both horrific trials, they conclude 
with Jesus being given a brutal beating at the hands of the guards inside and outside, we see Peter broken down, completely broken down and weeping. I'm imagining just chest heaving sobs being confronted with the reality of what he's just done. And now it's morning. And here we are in chapter 15. And unfortunately, Jesus is still under trial here. And this time, he stands before Rome. He stands under Pontius Pilate. Look again with me at uh, 15 verse 1, just, just verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So we're told here that the Sanhedrin, they've decided to transfer Jesus, who's all beaten and bloodied right now, to the proper Roman authorities to carry out his execution. Now, why did the Sanhedrin have to take this extra step? Why didn't they just ex execute Jesus on their own? Why did they have to send him over to Pilate? Well, the, the, the short answer is... Uh, Judea was still a Roman province. They were under Roman law and jurisdiction, which means that they couldn't execute anyone. Only Rome had that power to capitally punish. And in the days of Jesus, and there's great historical record about this, Pilate was the prefect overseeing Judea, which meant that he held the power of life and death over prisoners in that area. Now, this is an important thing to, to notice, which is that Pilate, being a Roman official, would probably not have cared to execute anyone over the charge of blasphemy. All right? He has no such interest in private Jewish religious affairs or squabbles. But here's what he definitely does care about. This is his job. Maintain the empire's control over Judea. Right, which is what keeps Caesar happy because law and order is what keeps the tax revenue coming in. So as we read on, what we see is the chief priest not trying to prosecute Jesus as a blasphemer, right? But as an insurrectionist. Someone trying to challenge the status quo of, of power in Rome or in Judea. A rebel king that might actually challenge Caesar for control over this area. And this is what Pilate will be trying to figure out. Is this Jesus actually a threat to Rome or not? So let's read on in verse 2. Verse 2. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. So Pilate's simple question here for Jesus is, Are you king of the Jews? Which, by the way, if you're picturing this scene, can't really be a serious question. How could it be? Because here's the scene before Pilate. Jesus is standing before him bound as a prisoner. He's got this iron collar 
around his neck, which is chained to iron cuffs around his, his wrists, anywhere from 10 to 15 pounds. Not to mention Jesus is standing there wounded. He is bruised. He is bleeding. He, he just endured a serious thrashing at the hands of the Sanhedrin guards. Do you think you'd look at such a man in such a state and mistake him for a king? Much less a threat to almighty Caesar? So Pilate's question is actually one of disbelief. Why are you guys bothering me with this? You're the king of the Jews? And yet, Jesus actually answers in the inf- uh, uh, affirmative, and, and it's actually a bit resigned. It's almost like, whatever, whatever you say. Now, these words will actually be the last thing that Jesus says, the last words that come out of his mouth until he cries out to his father on the cross. So even as the the chief priests hurl one false accusation after another after him, Jesus remains silent and mounts no defense whatsoever. We're told in in verse 5 that this silence, this response of Jesus actually leaves Pilate amazed, which could also be translated as uh, stunned, completely astounded. And we can all relate to that response. If we saw someone in these circumstances responding like this, I'm sure we'd all be amazed because this is not how we would respond. And I'm, and I'm thinking that Pilate recognized something in this moment, right? That what was standing before him was an innocent man. The chief priests, not so innocent. So, what do you do with an innocent man? You let him be, right? You let him go. But oddly, that's not what Pilate decides to do with Jesus. Because as it turns out, Pilate is also not an innocent man. He's actually a very compromised man. In many ways, he's very similar to another ruler that we heard about a while back a Jewish one named King Herod, who, if you recall, ended up carrying out an execution of an innocent man. Another innocent man named John the Baptist, who lost his head because Herod wanted to appease the crowd and save face before them. Not much of a difference, is there? So, uh, Pilate, being the shrewd politician that he is, thinks he's found in this Jesus, this king of the Jews, a great opportunity. He's going to advance himself. He's going to take this king Jesus and play him like a pawn uh, during this festival season, this big Jewish holiday, Feast of Passover. But Pilate isn't as shrewd as he'd like to believe. He thinks he's going to play the crowd, but it's going to be interesting uh, reversal. The crowd's going to play him. Let's read on from verse 6. Now at the feast, he, 
that is Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the resurrection, in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So we learn here that, that Pilate saw right through the chief priests. He saw that they were purely driven by the worst kind of envy and that the charges against Jesus were all a farce. Pilate even seems to want to give Jesus his freedom. But he makes this crucial mistake. He thinks the people will want to give him his freedom as well, that they'll surely want to see an innocent man go free. But as it turns out, that's not the case. The people presented with Jesus don't want Jesus. What they want instead is a countryman of theirs, a murderer, an insurrectionist, maybe a celebrity hero named Barabbas. Look with me at verse 11 and listen closely if you want some insight into the real human condition. Not necessarily what we often wish it is, but what it actually is. Verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! This, this, this little section starts off with a real tragedy. The chief priests who were entrusted with the, the sacred charge of being the faithful shepherds of Israel, what are they out there doing instead? Deceiving the people. Just like they bore false witness to Pilate, so here they are bearing false witness to the people, leading them astray and citing them against Jesus. And can you imagine even hardened politician Pilate, he's a bit shocked when the crowd who could have asked for any sort of punishment or discipline for Jesus, they go to the absolute extreme and they repeatedly demand crucify him. That got out of hand fast. The crowd seems to think that Jesus is... is uh, deserving of one of the most excruciating means of death and torture ever devised by man. And what this tells us about the crowd is that they're just as guilty as everyone else. They're completely complicit in this scene with the Sanhedrin and Pilate, the guards. Their hands have blood on them now. And one of the greatest ironies in all this, I don't know if you notice, is the only voice of reason here. It's none other than a representative of the evil empire itself, Pilate, who pleads with them in verse 14. Why? 
What evil has he done? I just want to pause here and, and have a soak in this sobering reminder of, of how important it is to, to listen carefully and honestly for the message, for the truth, rather than uh, picking and choosing and ignoring certain messengers just because they're not necessarily a member of our tribe, our party, or our little clique, or because they're not perfect. Because that's exactly how crowds turn into lynch mobs, right? And that's becoming more and more true of the, the rhetoric of our age, isn't it? Just a moment, just a reminder to maybe resist that undertow. And yet, uh, there's nothing new under the sun, and Pilate's question falls on hard hearts who double down on their sin as they keep shouting all the more, crucify him. Now, what makes the scene all the more surreal and tragic is that just a few days ago, some of these same people, likely in this mob, were probably praising Jesus as he entered Jerusalem, you know, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These same people, many of them were probably also delighting in Jesus' teaching in and around the temple. And maybe even some of them received miraculous healings by Jesus' very hands. But now all they're interested in is seeing some iron spikes go through those same hands. All right, give us Barabbas and crucify this Jesus. What an abominable circus. And sadly, just like King Herod, Pilate goes with the crowd. The end of all this, this is what we're told in verse 15. Verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him up to be crucified. So here's Pilate, another uh, self-serving politician, right? Giving the people what they want, not necessarily what they need. And we're also told that Pilate had Jesus scourged before he sent to be crucified. And here's how historians describe scourging. A scourging was a Roman judicial penalty where the victim was often stripped of his clothes, bound to a post, and then severely beaten with a multi-lashed whip containing embedded pieces of bone and metal, shredding the muscle and the skin. Many often died just by scourging. So, you'd be mistaken to think that Barabbas is the only person guilty of murder in this story, because who isn't guilty of murder in this story? Who doesn't have the blood of Jesus on their hands. The rulers of Israel are most certainly guilty. Pilate representing Rome is most certainly guilty. The bloodthirsty, beastly crowd is most certainly guilty. Everyone here seems to be walking the road of Cain, which is why his story was our first reading today. And let's be real, 
How well do you think you would have fared if uh, you were born into that time and place and you found yourself as a, as a member of this very crowd? The Bible doesn't give us many options, right? Let's, uh, we're, we're either a part of that crowd shouting with everyone else or we're like Peter and the disciples who are completely exposed as the betraying deserters that they turn out to be. Ah, that's because Cain, he was the very first son of man. Right? He's the son of Adam, of man. And, and, and he reveals a lot more about ourselves than we'd like to uh, admit or, or even see. Um, he was the original murderer, the first one to hate his brother before shedding his blood. And then when he's caught or confronted, he tries to deny responsibility by asking God, am I my brother's keeper? And did you know that Jesus has already told us in Mark that the heart of Cain is still very much in us? According to Jesus, when you take an honest and unfiltered, unadorned look at your own heart, he says this is what you're going to find. And this is true all the way down from the common man to the cruelest of despotic leaders. Listen, uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, if what Jesus says is true, we're a defiled people. And the problem of sin goes far deeper than the bad things that you occasionally say and do. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Those are just symptoms. Because the problem is the very heart. It's our very nature which is sinful, desperately wicked. What hope do the children of men have if Jesus' word is true? Well, uh, here's the incredibly good news. Jesus came as a son of man but not like other sons of men. In fact, all throughout Mark, Jesus has been referring to himself, I'm sure you've noticed, as the true son of man, the true image bearer of God, and thus the true son of God. And this is worthy of our amazement. This truth that he didn't come into the world to give sinners like you and I what we truly deserve, but instead, this is why he came. Here's what Jesus says about why he came. And this one sentence will show you the true heart of God. Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verse 15, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In fact, the very first act of Jesus' ministry in Mark he gets baptized. In other gospel accounts, John the Baptist 
kind of pushes back against this. He doesn't want to do this for Jesus, but he goes through with it. Why? Because in baptism, you know what Jesus is doing? He's identifying himself with sinners. The very first act of his ministry. And this is why Jesus goes on to say this. Right before he enters into the temple, when he knows what's coming on the other side of it is the cross. This is what he says. Chapter 10, verse 43. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And listen closely to this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, why is this almighty King Jesus standing silently before Pilate and his accusers, allowing himself to be led like a sheep to the slaughter? Because, unlike the kings of this world, who come to be served, he came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus, like no other king before or after him, would humble himself to the point of making himself a slave of all. Try to wrap your head around this, that the mightiest, most glorious king would make himself subservient to the lowest of the low as the lowest slave. Even to the point where he would give up his very own life to give his life as a ransom for yours, as a ransom for many. And you know what a ransom is, right? It's simply the price that must be paid for someone's release. And friends, who do we see being released in our passage today? A murderous rebel sinner named Barabbas. Jesus somehow becomes this undeserving sinner's ransom, doesn't he? Jesus somehow sovereignly and willingly takes the place of this man as his substitute, does he not? And Mark really doesn't want, to, want us to miss this. This is another living picture that he's painting about what Jesus' cross actually means. For it is written in Deuteronomy, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, Jesus isn't only going to give his life as a ransom, but he's going to do so and take our curse upon himself. Right? He's going to step into your punishment, take it for you, and even for the best of us, like Peter, who in their bondage to sin, just while trying to save themselves, actually end up invoking a curse upon themselves. And Mark gives us this huge, beautiful clue about what exactly is happening here. And once again, what Jesus is accomplishing at the cross, and that huge clue is Barabbas. Or at least his very interesting name, 
because here's what the name Barabbas literally means. Son of the Father. Jesus the King. The true Son of the Father will give his life as a ransom for who? Another Son of the Father. Yes, this Barabbas who is rightfully doomed to death, who brings nothing to God other than his own sin, all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, receives complete freedom and pardon as Jesus of Nazareth submits to the will of his Father and goes to the cross, stepping into the sinner's place. And all Barabbas has to do to accept this king's ransom, this blood gift of a king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, all he has to do is receive him. Just accept what Jesus has done for him. Trust him. Walk with him. And here's the amazing good news. This very same king's ransom is available to everyone here today. So I want to ask you, have you received this freedom and pardon from sin? This deliverance from death that is being offered to you in Christ at his cross? If not, I and some others will, will be up here after the service and we'd love to share more or answer any questions you might have. And for those of you that already know God as Father and Christ as his Son, I want to ask you, do you know him as Abba? Which is the affectionate term for Father? Papa? That's that's part of Barabbas' name. That's who Jesus will call out to on the cross. Papa. Abba. Do you know the greatness of this ransom, this gift that's been given to you, the greatness of your pardon, and are you growing in awareness of how you are first and foremost a beloved and redeemed child of the Father, Worthy of the blood of Jesus, his own son. Or are you trying to find your identity, purpose, hope, sense of worth out there, elsewhere? Have you gotten caught up in some angry and fearful crowd playing the uh, us versus them game? Or how about the status and envy game? Go back and read that list of vices that Jesus mentions, right? So many games our sinful hearts are prone to playing, all of which wastes our precious blood-bought freedom and birthright. Beware, there are many false shepherds out there that would love to offer you, having been deceived and deceiving others, this or that, this other solution to life, deliverance from death, but remember, here's what Jesus is offering you instead. 
something of infinite value, his very self. What is better than that? And yet, uh, don't forget this. Regardless of where you're at this morning, the gospel that we proclaim to you is that your ransom has been paid. Our ransom has been paid. And he's come not to call the righteous, but sinners to himself. Glory, hallelujah. Uh, let us now meditate on the lyrics to this song. How great the Father's love for us.